difficulties. Still not being videoed because I have a problem. Okay. Hopefully the recording is going to work with Hashem's help. Um, tonight's class was dedicated by Terry Levin. This is in honor of her grandmother's yard Yitzchak. That was yesterday. May Neshama have a very great aliyah to the greatest of lights and lots of bracha and mazel and only, only good to you. Also, in honor of her father's upcoming yard site this Shabbos, Ruvain ben Yisrael Halevi, on the 29th of Nisan. Nisan is a time of miracles, so may it be a, a, a miraculous, a miraculous elevation for his very, very special soul, and may he channel lots of miraculous blessings to you that you should see big, 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 big miracles in your life, and all that you need and all that you wish for, and it should all materialize as you will see in the concept of this class, how the most, apt, the most powerful of the abstraction of the miraculous finds expression and needs to become totally one with the physical material world. Uh, may that materialize in your life. Um, another dedication this week was by Mrs. Ellie Rubin and her daughter Sharon Bestamsky. This is in honor of her husband and Sharon's father's yurt site, which was today. Kalman ben Menachem Mendel Olive Hasholim on the 24th of Nisan. Uh, a very, very, very special man. Big Baal Tzedakah, anonymous and kind. Always there in shul first. Very, very, very special. May he be a big schus and a merit for his neshama. Especially since you're so much the part of Mayan. May the shear given at Mayan be a big schus for your very special husband and father's Anishama, carry him to the greatest of heights, and all that was mentioned before about the miracle blessings coming down, unifying with life down here, that will uh, apply to you and your family as well, for only much bracha nachas, and only, only good in all aspects, revealed good. Um, last, but not least, I have a special dedication. I'm wearing my uh, big day Shabbos today because I had the merit to be a sandik at a bris today, um, and that was really, really special. A dear friend of, a friend of mine, uh, David Feldman from Chicago, and his wonderful wife, Meryl Feldman, uh, whose son got married last year over here in Los Angeles, and they live in the community in Pico. They had their first baby boy, and today was the bris. So a big, big, big mazel tov first for beautiful little boy named Levi Yitzchak. May he grow up to be a chassid Yerushalayim in Alamdin. And uh, may the parents, Schneer and Devora, may you both merit to raise him in good health. Uh, and he should bring you a lot, a lot, a lot of lichtik chassidusha, emes yiddusha nachas, and uh, big, big, big nachas to the grandparents. And be'ezus Hashem from all the children, from all the future grandchildren, 
only nachas and only wonderful things. May you be continue to be blessed in all all ways. And as we're going to see, this dedication as well has great connection to this week's parsha. In that the parsha is parsha shmini, which is the number eight, which is what we had today, the bris milah on the eighth day. Thank you for all those dedications. Uh, thanks. All right. Um, as mentioned, this week is Parsha Shemini. Now, it's been Parsha Shemini for a while. Those who study the Torah portion every day, um, every day it's a minhag by many people to learn a part of the Torah portion, Sunday from the beginning to Shani, and so on and so forth. Uh, could be getting a little antsy already with Parsha Shemini because we're now rolling around the third time of Parsha Shemini. Third time, and it's not an easy Parsha. It's got very long Rashi's. <laughs> so, uh, and we're doing it now, round number three. In Eretz Yisrael, it's not Parsha Shemini. Because for them, yeah, Shabbos was already Parsha's, the next part was already Parsha Shemini, so next we, they're going further. But for us, in the diaspora, in Chutzliyaretz, this is Parsha Shemini. Uh, again, now what's unique this week about the Shemini reading is that we're reading Shemini, we got to read the Torah Shemini eight times. Very unique phenomenon. It only happens very rare occasions when the setup of Pesach is exactly like it is now. The Parsha Shemini extends over three weeks. Shabbos Hagadol, which was Parsha Tzav by Mincha, we read the first time Parsha Shemini. Then on Monday and on Thursday that week, it was still the week before Pesach, we read Parsha Shemini. Shabbos was Yantif, so we read Parsha of Yantif, but Shabbos by Mincha, we read again Parsha Shemini, that was number four. Then this past Shabbos, which was the last day of Pesach, Achron Shal Pesach, right before the Moshiach Suda, right before this grand Moshiach meal, we read again in the Torah, and guess what it was? Parsha Shemini. Now Monday, today, we read it again for the sixth time. Thursday, we're going to read it seventh time. And on Shabbos in the morning, we're finally going to read the crown jewel, the entire portion. Till now we only read, like on Mondays on Shabbos by Mincha, we read a little poor portion. We're going to read the entire Parsha Shemini, but it's going to be the eighth time. Now there's an old Hasidic saying, an old Hasidic teaching. It's called Shemini Shmaina Shmaina. Interesting play on words. It's a, exactly who the source is, I haven't found out but it's a Hasidic teaching uh, coming from the Hasidim in Poland where there was a phrase that was used that in the occurrence of this year when we read Shemini eight times Shemini means eight, the eighth when we read it eight times Shemini, Shemina then the year that, it, that, that we're in is going to be an extremely a, a saturated year because Shemina means fat it's going to be a fatty year with a lot, a lot, an abundance of blessing both in the spiritual and in the material. Shmini Shmaina, when you do Shmini eight times, Shmaina, it's Zaftik. It's really, really a year of incredible blessings. So that's what's very, very powerful this year. Now, to add to that, to add something very, very amazing to the equation. This year, in addition to that, we're in the year that is number eight. We're in the year 5778, which the 5778 adds another eighth dimension to the, to the year. Now, we know that the Jewish people, when they went out of Egypt, left, 
in a year of eight. It was the year 2448. So the first redemption that we brought redemption to the world was a year of eight. This year, again, we're in the year of eight. That's why this year is a very, very, very misugaldigi year, meaning it's a very appropriate year for redemption. Now I know, especially those who hang around Mayon, who've been listening to classes, might feel a little bit of a, a little bit of a letdown. We've been waiting. We had a Mashiach meal over here the other day, and we were already we were already in Mashiach zone. We were so close, and who no one wanted or expected to be making havdalah still in exile. Pesach, we're sure the redemption would come. So I'd like to say to everybody, game's not over till it's over, right? We're still in the middle of it. We're still in the middle of the of the eighth year. But in addition to being in the eighth year, we're still in the midst of the month of Nisan. And Nisan is the time of the redemption. And it doesn't say anywhere when it says Benisan Nigalu, Benisan Asidan Ligoil, that in Nisan we were redeemed and in Nisan we're going to be redeemed. It doesn't say anywhere which day of Nisan. It doesn't say it has to be on Pesach. Of course, we get excited Pesach by night and also the last day of Pesach, which is Unique Mashiach Day. But we're really still in the midst of the month of Nisan and the redemption can still happen. And it's going to happen so quickly in the blink of an eye, the whole world can be redeemed. So, and we're living, and, and the truth is, as we're going in Nisan, Nisan is only becoming more Nisan every minute. So it's like, it's, 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 it's growing. It's Nisan power. Every minute, every moment, exponentially expands the power of Nisan as it gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So we still have about a week, a little less than a week, couple of days, in which to still live inside, including to the end, until Sunday. And even Sunday, it's Rosh Chodesh Ir, but it's still the last day of Nisan. So we still have till Sunday uh, Shkia, the setting of the sun, that we're still in the Nisan state. So the power of the redemption is still here, and we can still make it happen. It's not something that we wait for God to do. It's something that we need to do. And how do we do it? By us being a miracle, by us putting ourselves into a redemptive state of mind, into a state of, of complete devotion and dedication beyond the natural uh, to Hashem, and by our powerful confidence and also yearning for Mashiach, we can turn it all around. We can make, we can bring the Giyula, we can bring the redemption. This year, very, very powerful. Because as we said before, all the eights are lining up. But not only are the eights lining up, this year is unique even more than the year they went out of Egypt. Because then it was two, four, four, eight. You didn't have the sevens. This year it's eight above seven. As we see, five, seven, seven, and then we have the number eight. What is significant about that? Well, let me share with you, Kliyakar, this week in the parsha. The Torah begins this week in the parsha. It was on the eighth day. Why is the parsha called Shemini? It's called Shemini because it was, it, the story begins with, it was on the eighth day. The eighth day of what? The eighth day from when the tabernacle was built. Initially, the Jewish people were told by God, make me a home. Build me a home from, from your materials, from your physical materials. I will come live. The Jewish people erected that home. They completed all the work. It was a very, 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 very tremendous amount of talent, tremendous amount of labor went into making this unbelievable structure. And when it was done, um, they were told you know, they, to wait with the, when they would put it up. Moshe Rabbeinu began on the 23rd day of Adar to put the Mishkan up. But every day he put it up and he had to take, take it down. He put it up and took it down for seven days. Those seven days were called Shivas Yemei Hamaluyim. Seven days. In which Moshe himself officiated in the temple. Aaron the high priest 
didn't work. He was in the midst of his inauguration. Then the Torah, that, and that is discussed last week in the Torah portion, Pasha Tzav. In this Torah portion, it says, and it was on the eighth day. And what happened on the eighth day? On the eighth day, finally, Moshe stepped aside and he gave over the, the work to the high priest, to Aaron the Kohen Gadol. But the most magnificent thing that happened on that day was the Mishkan was not taken down at night. It remained standing as the edifice, as the home for God in this world. And the crown jewel of the day was that the Jewish people watched to wonder when they saw the heavenly fire come down, literally in front of their eyes. They perceived the Almighty. They perceived God come down and consume the carbon. They saw literally with their eyes the Shekhinah, the divine presence, resting in the Mishkan. So all their work finally produced that which they were waiting for, the Shekhinah to come down. But it was Vayihib Bayoim Hashmini, it was on the eighth day. Why on the eighth day? Now, simply it's because it was after seven days. But why does the Torah have to emphasize it was on the eighth day? And the other interesting thing is, why is this statement that it was on the eighth day not a continuation of the last Torah portion? Why is this a new Torah portion? Why do we begin with the Vayihib and it was Bayoim Hashmini? If it's the eighth... What, is, is this eighth day a continuation to the previous days? If it, if it was, it was the eighth day. You can't have an eighth day without having seven before that. So it was a continuation. But it's a new thing. Those were seven days of inauguration. That's done. Now it's a new avod. It's a, in a sense, it was the first day. It wasn't the eighth day. It was the first day when the Mishkan stood. Whatever was done before was preliminary. It makes sense that it was the first day in the sense that the Torah puts it into a new Torah portion. Not a continuation. If it would just be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, then this story should have been a continuation to last week. But the fact that it's in a new Torah portion seems to imply that there is a breakaway. What was, was. And now there's something new. Eight is a whole new thing. So how do we... So then why do we emphasize that it was the eighth? It was number one. Comes the Kli Yakar, who is a great commentator on the Chumash, and he says something really special. He says like this, you should know if he, the reason why God came down on this day is connected to the number eight. This day was the eighth day. The number eight is what caused the holiness. See, we're talking about the year being a special year because it's the eighth year. The fact that it's the eighth, that caused the holiness. Why? The number seven represents the mundane. Why? And the number eight is holy. Seven is mundane in the sense that what? Seven is creation. Time and space is seven. When God created the creation, God created the creation to be the creation of seven. Seven days in the week. Then we know we have, now we're in the midst of a seven times seven count. Right? Seven weeks, seven weeks, Sephira, we count seven times seven. And then we also have seven years. We have the sabbatical, and then we have, you know, which is, which is each, each, the sabbatical cycle, the Shemitah cycle. So it all works in, in the number of seven. Also, space is in the number of seven, because you have six directions, you have the center point. Right? So that's seven. We also know there are seven nations who lived in the land of Israel, which they are the source for the 70 nations. There are seven continents. In the world, I mean, everything, everything is seven. The world is a world of seven. Um, and it's built on the, the seven godly emotions. Now let's understand something. The, when we say that the world is seven, 
creation is seven. When he says it's mundane, he doesn't mean completely mundane. Because amongst the seven days of the week, we have holiness. We have Shabbos. Shabbos Kodesh. Shabbos, Shabbos is holy. It's the holy day of Shabbos, which means a godly light. What's Shabbos? Shabbos is a time when God is more revealed and present in the world. So Shabbos is holy. When we say that the seven is mundane, what we mean is compared to the eight, seven is mundane. Because the Shabbos, what, what, what is the idea? The idea is that seven represents the creation together with the divine energy or the godly life force of creation. The battery of the world, so to speak. Even though it's God, but it's still the battery of the world. It's still the limited light that God infuses into creation to be a source for finite existence. Number eight represents the transcendental. Number eight represents the miraculous. Number eight, eight represents that which doesn't have any limits and any boundaries. That which is in sof. That's why, I mentioned earlier when we do a bris milah, like I merited today to be the sandik for this little baby. The bris, the covenant in which we take a Jewish child and we're saying you as a Jew, you're not part of the natural order. You as a Jew, you're part of the transcendental. You're here to infuse the world with holiness, with godly light, but you're above the creation. And that's why our existence as Jews is purely miraculous. The first Jew, Yitzchak, was born a miraculous birth. He had to wait. Avram and Sarah had to wait until they couldn't naturally bear any children. Sarah couldn't bear any children even when she was young. She was a, 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 uh, a kara. She was a barren woman. The Talmud says she didn't even have a womb. That's how impossible for her to have a child. But even that wasn't enough. Hashem waited till, in terms of their age, it would be impossible for them to have a child. And then, boom! The first Jew comes into this world because a Jew is not nature. A Jew is from above nature because a Jew represents the infinite and God and our job is to fuse the infinite with the finite, bring heaven down to earth and that's why we're connected to the number eight. Hanukkah, in which we're presenting the miraculous we celebrate for eight days and so on and so forth. Everything in the number eight is the infinite, the transcendental. Um, and that's why we also find, so the, the Kaliakar continues, Kedas HaMidrish, like the Midrash says, HaOimer who says, Shekol kilusay shal Moshe haya ba'oz, Moshe Rabbeinu, all of his praise, what is Moshe? Moshe is the first human being to actually bring down a consistent flow of divine light higher than the creation. He's the one who breaks all the boundaries of the world. Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, they had miracles happening to them privately, but they didn't live in the miraculous order. They, didn't, they weren't constantly or in display for the whole world. Moshe has that stick, and he's waving that wand this way and that way. His entire life, he's bringing manna from heaven, he's bringing water out of from a rock, he's splitting seas, making frogs come out from the water, taking the earth, turning it into lice, making it dark and light. He's turning over the world constantly. Why? Moshe is the eighth dimension. And that's why when Moshe Rabbeinu comes to Paro, his first words that he says, may us basi el paroi. He says the word us. What is the word us? Gematria 8. Us then, but it, that's what it means. Then, but the word us is Aleph over Zion. Aleph means one over seven, which is the number eight. And we also know, of course, when the Jewish people stood by the splitting of the sea and we witnessed the biggest miracle, how did we express ourselves? What was the song that shot forth from the depth of our, of our souls? We all cried out. We sang, Uz Yashir Moshe. Then Moshe sang, Aleph above the seven. And it's interesting. It doesn't just say eight. 
The word eight in the word oz is an aleph sitting on top of the seven. What does that represent? Seven is nature. Aleph is the singular one. So that's creation. Creation is seven. It's a world that has the plural. It has the seven directions. We said before six directions. But this, it's, it's, a, it's a world of many different elements. And then there's the singular one that transcends it all. That's the word us. So that's the godliness that's higher than creation. Now, how different is seven than eight? Even though we said earlier, seven is also holy. Six, you might say, is really the creation. Seven is the glue that's in all of creation. That's the point of Shabbos that comes and unifies the whole week. Right? It's the center point in the six directions. The seventh is the middle, which is really the point which unifies everything. So seven includes divinity as well. It includes God. But as we said before, a measured, limited godliness. Number eight represents an infinite level of the divine, the miraculous. That's number eight. How much holier is eight than seven? So much so that when a bris mila happens, when a circumcision of a baby happens on Shabbos, that means when a baby reaches his eighth day, a baby, Jewish baby boy, and there's a problem, making a circumcision involves violation of Shabbos. Now violating Shabbos means you're erasing its sanctity. That's what you're doing. There is a holiness of Shabbos, and we're ignoring it, we're erasing, we're opposing the sanctity of Shabbos. Now if there's a baby boy that needs a circumcision, we have a question. If we're given the circumcision, we're going to violate the Shabbos. And violation of Shabbos is punishable by death. This is so serious. So, but yet, guess what? We do the bris on the eighth day, even though it's Shabbos. The, 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 the bris mila is so important, it pushes Shabbos to the side. And we say, why? So the words of the Kliyakar, he says, uh, um, he says, the reason is, hold it, he says, the milas on the eighth day, because the spiritual pushes away the physical. In other words, he looks at the holiness of Shabbos as physical and compares to the ruchni, the spirituality of the eighth, eighth, the eighth dimension. Like mundane compared to holiness. That's how holy the eight is over, over that. He actually adds, the concept of eight, he uses the words is, Ki oz echod sheva, one riding on seven. It means to make God rule al kol shivas on all the seven planets. I'm going to be called leches. These are the, uh, yeah. And, and on everything that God created in seven days. It's the Kliyakar. And he dis- discusses this and elaborates a little more. So now we can understand why the eighth is the day that God comes to rest on the Mishkan. You see, as much as they tried with their human efforts to bring God down into this world, it was impossible. Because the gap that there is between the infinite and the finite is an absolute. It's an infinite distance. So even if we climb a ladder of refinement, of deep concentration and attachment and devakos, what we might say, which means cleaving to God from within our experiences, from within our thoughts, from within our meditations, from within our perception of our minds, we can only perceive the finite because we're coming from the finite. We can't truly grasp the infinite. The infinite has to be given to us as a gift from above. That's why that was displayed in the fact that when Moshe, even Moshe, 
together with the Jewish people, were making an attempt on their own to get God down in this world. For seven days they try. They make an attempt, but it's not happening. Why is it not happening? Because we're dealing with... It's, if it would only be the discovery of the divinity that's within the world, that they could have accomplished in the seven days. But since the Mishkan means a home for God Almighty Himself, God with all of His entirety, God in all of His, his infinity, all of His endlessness, to come reside in this home down here below, that requires the eighth day, which the eighth means it's infinitely beyond your reach. I'm coming because I, God says, because I want to shear and to descend in your work because that's so I want. It's nothing to do with your work. That's the number eight that's transcendent and that's why it happened on the eighth day. That is, and by the way, the eighth day was the month of Nisan. Rosh Chodesh Nisan was the eighth day because Nisan is the month, even though it's not the eighth month, but Nisan represents that month of the transcendental. And the word nace, the word Nisan means transcendental. So now, let's go back. So when we're standing in the month of Nisan, in the year 5778, and, and I mentioned to you, this year it's extra, extra, super, super powerful and super special. The 8th of this year, why is it so super special? Because as opposed to the year when we went out of Egypt, when it was 2448, this year it's 5778, which is the, literally the idea of Oz Yashir. Then Moshe will sing. The Aleph is right on top of the seven. Because we're now within the, 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 in the tens, we are in the 770 zone. Which means the entire 10 years is 5,770 plus one. Now I once discussed this, that the number seven is the perfect number of creation. We mentioned earlier. 770 is the number of refinement of creation to its ultimate. That's why we once had a whole discussion about France. The word sarfas, France in Hebrew is sarfas, which means sarfas comes from the word siruf, to refine. That the lowest place in the world that still needed refinement, so the class that I gave last year, was, was France, because it was the most antithetical to holiness. And therefore, all tzaddikim avoided going to France and doing anything, because they felt that the impurity over there was so strong, the klipa was so dense. But only in the last generation were we able to penetrate that klipa and build up Yiddishkeit even in France. So we, and we explained, and remember that class, I, uh, that that represents the completion of nature being refined. So, th- so this year, when we, comp- we had all the sevens reaching, and in the seven we now come to the eighth year, so the eight is riding on top of the seven, literally like the word us, we're the one, the eighth dimension is above that. Wow! The power, so what we might say is like this, everything that, and I, if, if anybody that has been following the classes, I've been showing so much, and we've been talking so much about this, how in the last couple of years, we've been seeing the world moving to a certain purification. The world moving to a purification, a purification, a purification. It's purifying itself. It's reaching. So, but in the years till now, we dealt with purification of the world. That's not number eight yet. Number eight is this year. In other words, this year after the world reaches its perfection and purification, we look up and we say to God, now we are ready for you to enter as Vahibah Yoim Hashmini was on the eighth day. So this is what makes it very unique. However, I'm going to ask the question like this. What do we gain when it's not just the eighth year and that we... Re- and so, so to emphasize how powerful the number eight this year is, that Parsha Shemini 
which we read during Pesach, because Pesach is the time of redemption, the time that we're going out of all boundaries. It's, it's all the power of the number eight, of the eighth dimension. By the way, I forgot to mention one more thing. We know that in the future redemption, in the Holy Temple, there is going to be a harp. Now the harp has seven strands. King David's played with a harp of seven strands. So the, the Medrash says that the harp of this world is a harp of seven. The keynote of a harp that's going to be in. When Mashiach will come, we will play with a harp with eight strands. In other words, the world will discover the eighth note. Another note in music. What does that mean? Now it's not possible. It doesn't exist. But once Mashiach comes, when our consciousness expands and we open up to an infinite energy, an infinite light, the presence of God that's bigger than creation, music will change. Not just will music change a little bit, music will be completely transformed with the eighth note, which is not just another note, but it's a note that redefines all the other seven notes. Very powerful. And that is the, the, the uh, that's, and that's an indication. Why is there an eighth? Because when we're singing, we're singing in response to what's stimulating us. What is stimulating us? Eight dimensions. We're touching the eighth. We're experiencing eight. We're living in the eighth. So we're singing in response to that with eight notes. That's our song. The question we only have over here is, okay, it's all great. What is added this year that we read Parsha Shemini eight times? Like what is essentially unique that not only do we read about the eighth dimension, but we read it eight times. What is so spout? Why is it that Shmini, Shmaina, Shmaina? Is it just that someone decided to play on words and decided that sounds cute? And he, and he sent it to someone on a WhatsApp and it got around and went viral? No, no, no. Tzadikim would not have discussed this if this is just someone's Mishagas. It's not someone's Mishagas. It's something that is very deep and real. That when we read Parsha Shmini eight times, it's Shmena, it's fatty. So what's the, the idea behind it? So for that, let's analyze again. Let's go back to the idea of the number eight. The number eight we said before is the supernatural, the untouchable, that which is above, that which is infinite, that which is beyond. Fine. But, the, but here's an interesting thing. If it's beyond, 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 and it's totally above and beyond creation, we go back to the question, why are we calling it eight? It shouldn't be eight. There's seven, and then there's one. It's because it's not, when you say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, right? If you're counting, means that each number is leading you to the next number. The gap that there is between seven and eight is an infinite gap. So seven does not re, doesn't, doesn't bring you to eight. You can't add one more and get to eight. Eight is outside of reach. If that's the case, why do we call it eight? It's seven. There's one. The truth is in the word us, we're not saying ches, we're not coming eight. We're saying aleph, and there's seven. The one that's above the seven. But even in the word us, which represents eight, which the numeric value of the word us is eight, which is indicating that wow, that the one is not related to the seven. It's not the eighth. It's, a, it's apart from all the others. Yet it's one word, us. That means we're taking the aleph and we're connecting it to the seven, which means that it is, it is attached. Why is it attached? If it's a complete different dimension. And the answer is the purpose. The purpose, that's the answer. The purpose is not 
to leave the zone of the seven and to enter into the eighth. The purpose is not to run away from the finite reality, from the entrapments of the limited body, and to escape into a magical world of eight. That's not the purpose. The purpose is fusion. The purpose is that our natural finite world with physical bodies, human beings in the physical world, as we are the same like we're now, our bodies with all of its seemingly limitations of what makes us human and physical, should live and experience the supernatural and the infinite. Not the dissolving of the seven, the fusion of the seven and the eight. So the reason why when we say the eighth, when we call it the eighth, is not because, here, it's not because it has really a connection to the seven. Essentially, it is, it is, it is, it is separated with a quantum, with, a, with, with an absolute separation. There, it doesn't have any relationship whatsoever. But through the work and through God's desire from what he created the world and he wanted to have a home in this world, he gave us the ability to bring him down into this world and to fuse the eighth with the seventh to the point that we look at the entire chunk as the eighth. We call it the eighth, which links the eighth with the seven to the point that you can't have that eight without the seven. And therefore they're linked together and they're unified. That's the beauty of the eighth day. What happened on the eighth day? It's not that suddenly on the eighth day, the Jewish people were preparing themselves, you know, they had this, uh, what was this? I'm sorry for mentioning something so silly and ridiculous, but it came to my head now. Just, I remember, what was it, a few years ago, there was this, 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 sadly, there was this group of people who believed that something was going to happen on a certain day and they were waiting and, then, and they all, I think, uh, committed suicide. I don't know what they did, but there was some kind of a, you know, they were all going to leave this world and, and, and run away. That's not what happened, God forbid, on the eighth day that everybody went onto a cloud and suddenly they flew away and went somewhere. That's not Judaism. Judaism, what happened? The Jews remained here in this world, physical people. And very physical, entrepreneurs, business people, farmers, doctors, very, very... If anything about the Jewish people is that we're not a spiritual um, escapist kind of a people. We're very, very down to earth. We're very, very, very much part of the world. But at the same time, we possess a godly soul and a capacity to touch the infinite, to reach the infinite, to draw down the infinite, and to infuse the infinite into the rest of creation and to make it totally one. That's the beauty. That's the magnificence of the eighth day. That's why the eighth is eight, that the eighth is part of the seven. It's the eighth. But, here is where the uniqueness of reading Parsha Shemini eight times comes in. Because, there is a difference between Shemini and Shemina. Shemini means the eighth. Shemina means eight. What's the difference between eight and the eighth? See, you can't have the eighth unless you first have seven. That's for sure. If I say, this is my eighth child, what does that mean? That Kenai Nahara, I had seven children before this child. This is my eighth child. However, once this child was born, following after the seventh, seven children, I can take this child apart, separate, and let's see, all the other children are out in school, or wherever they are, and you, and you ask me, and I can say, this is my eighth child. That means for me to say the eighth, I don't need this child to be together with all the other seven. 
It's created. The eighth concept is created only after there's seven, but I don't need all seven to be here for this one to be the eighth. The eighth is the eighth. But if I say eight, and I'm saying something, let's say an object, I'm applying, I'm going to give you eight dollars, I can't take out my wallet and count one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and give you the eighth one. I say, well, this is the eight. Yeah, but you're supposed to give me eight dollars. See, when I'm saying eight, then all eight are included. I can't say, okay, here's the eighth. Eight doesn't work. I need eight, not the eighth. So eight is more inclusive in grabbing the other seven. That's what's unique, the difference between eight and eighth. So in a regular year, when we read Parsha Shmini one time, two, usually we read it three times. On a, we could. Technically, every Parsha is read three times. I'm sorry, four times. Every Parsha is read four times. Shabbos by Mincha, Monday, Tuesday, and the next Shabbos, four times. So when we read any Parsha Shmini in a regular year, four times, whatever, what we're emphasizing is that this week we have the capacity to reach the eighth dimension. Parsha Shmini, it's unique. There's a unique power to touch the infinite. But the infinite still remains a little too infinite. Meaning it's the eighth, it's a dimension that we can only reach. We went through the seven and then we took a quantum leap and we touched the eight, but it isn't necessarily that we're still holding on to the seven prior. But when you reach, you read Parsha Shmini eight times, so instead of just having the eighth, we also have eight. That means that the eighth and the seven are lined up together. That means that we achieve total fusion, complete unification between the seven and the eighth. That means that nature and the supernatural become completely merged, converged, unified, and totally one. So this year we have the ability so much stronger that the natural world should become miraculous. That the mundane world itself should become godly, should become the eighth dimension, because it's, it's, it's eight times eight. This idea, the Lubavitcher Rebbe said in the year 5771, which was the last year, not since then, we've had, I'm sure, a couple of times since 20, in the last 27 years that this happened, but it was the last year that the Rebbe spoke in a year like this, and he said the awesomeness. He said that's why that year, he called it a year of miracles. And a year so, so conducive for Geula, for Mashiach, because he says the eighth, eight times. Now, how is it possible? Now, we, see, well, the problem we have is we, because we don't appreciate how far the eighth is from the seven, how distant, how removed it is, how impossible it is, and to be able to line them up together and say you have eight... It's so ridiculous. But how does it happen? How can it happen? The answer is, just like God is not finite, God is also not infinite. God is not finite and God is not infinite. He transcends both the finite and the infinite. And he has no definitions whatsoever. And because God doesn't have any definitions whatsoever, to him... To him, to his essence, seven and eight are absolutely equal. And God can unify his infinite energy with the finite world, and both of them become absolutely one. 
And that's the meaning of the third word in this Hasidic phrase. Eight, Shmini, Shmaina, Shmaina. Eight, when Shmini is read eight times, it's a fatty year. You see, Shmaina comes from the word Shamein. Shamein means Shemen, comes from the word oil. Oil is a very interesting substance. Oil is of the oil is, on the one hand, oil doesn't mix with anything. Because you put oil, you put oil into any liquid, the oil will swim to the top. So the oil represents something that stands alone. That doesn't have any, it's above everything, it's higher than everything. But then there's something else amazing. Everything in this world has oil in it. There's a, there is, the oil permeates and goes into everything. Oil is can is above everything, but at the same time, it saturates everything. In halacha, there is a concept, shemen mefafeya becholdover. If you shemen oil, you put oil in something, it gets completely inside of it, even though in a liquid, oil as a liquid stands separated. Therefore, in Hasidic terminology in Kabbalah, oil stands for God's very, very, very essence. Obviously, we're talking about the oil is symbolic. It's in indicating the very essence of God. So the ability to be able to take the Shemini, the eighth dimension, and extend it into all the Shemina, all the eight, how can that fusion happen that the Shemini, the eighth one, should be fully permeating all the other seven? It can only happen through the essence, which is Shemin, which is the Shemen, which is God's essence, that can fuse the finite and the infinite and turn them into one. That's what's so unique this year. Now, to really, really appreciate what we've spoken about on a much deeper level. So now, I'd like to in, uh, introduce a simple question. When we said before, let me give a little bit more, a little bit better explanation to this idea that the ultimate, the ultimate purpose and the ultimate objective is the complete fusion where seven and eight become where the seven get permeated with number eight. What does it mean practically? We said before that when Mashiach will come, we'll have a harp, and the harp music will be sung with eight notes. And as I mentioned earlier, it's not that there are seven notes and there's the eighth. All seven notes are changed. Imagine when you add one more note to music, what is it going to do to the sound of all other music? Everything is going to change. So what does it mean in terms of the experience when Mashiach comes? When Mashiach comes, it says, the nigla kavod Hashem, the glory of God will be revealed. The ra'u kobasar, and all flesh will see divinity. Kipi Hashem Dibra, that God has spoken. When Mashiach will come, it says that the flesh will behold the divine. Now let's understand what that means. That means that when Mashiach will come, we will see we will see without, not mentally, not through a meditative vision. Our physical eyes will behold the divine. We'll see God. It's going to happen when Mashiach comes. We're going to see the, the godly energy that's within the world. We're going to see even the encompassing energy of God that's higher than the world with our physical eyes. Now that's not a novelty. It is a novelty compared to what we live in today when we live in total darkness and we live in concealment 
in which we only see the natural, we only see the material. We have to study about God, but we don't tangibly experience Hashem in 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 in, in our in our physical in our with our physical bodies. When Mashiach will come, we will see with our eyes. That's great, but that's not a total novelty, because by when they split the sea, the Jews also pointed with their fingers and they said, "Zekeli, this is my God." By the giving of the Torah, the Jews saw Hashem. As the Fasik says, they saw the sounds, they saw the divine power, they saw Hashem. So the people already, so what's going to be unique when Mashiach comes? So here there's something very, very important. When the Jewish people stood at the splitting of the sea, and when the Jewish people stood by Mount Sinai, they beheld, they experienced the infinite, but to them it was an out-of-body experience. It was an otherworldly experience. It was an abnormal experience. What do I mean by that? Their physical eyes didn't change. Their natural eyes remained the same natural eyes like they're now. Their eyes and your eyes and my eyes were exactly the same. They had the same physical eyes. And the, same phys- and, and, and the nature, what's the nature of our physical eye? The nature of our physical eye is to behold physicality, not to see spiritual energy. So their eyes didn't change. If so, why did they see God? They saw God because God made it a miracle that they saw God. In other words, God's light was so powerful. God's ability to reveal Himself is so powerful and so strong that He can make Himself visible even to our eyes. But it's not the nature of our eyes to see Him. So nature was suspended and for a few minutes they lived in this miraculous world of the spiritual, of the godly. That's what happened by the giving of the Torah. That's what happened by the Yamsu. The beauty of Mashiach is, the uniqueness of the days of Mashiach is, that it will be the natural state of our eyes to see God. It's not even going to be a miracle. It's going to be the most ordinary thing for humanity, for human eyes, and maybe even animal eyes, for the entire world to see God. It's going to be the natural, it's going to be nature. It's going to be normal. One of, the, one of the prophecies it says when Mashiach will come, God says, I will spill my spirit over man. I will pour it out. What's the difference between pouring something into a cup and then spilling something? When you pour something in a cup, you're discriminate. You're discriminating. Who's receiving? You're standing with a bottle, you're giving. You're under 18, you can't get. You, you're drank, you drank too much already, I'm not giving you. Right? You can discriminate. Who want you misbehave when you drink, I'm not giving you. So you can decide who you're giving. But when the bottle spills... It just spill. Everybody can go lick it up. <laughs> it's everywhere. God says, "I'm going to spill prophecy to the point." And, and you know what the, ver- the verse continues? And little toddlers, little children will be prophets. Your, your sons and daughters will be prophets. What does that mean? That means that in, the, in, in when, when there was prophecy, we had a thousand-year period, I think, something like that, that there was prophecy. During the prophecy period, it was abnormal to be a prophet. That's why who was a prophet? Only a selected few people. Rambam gives a whole list of qualifications you need in order to be a prophet. In order to be a Navi, you need certain things. To be someone who conquers your evil inclination, someone who's very strong. A whole list of things. And even then, the Rambam says, there were many people called B'nai Hanaviyim, who their entire life they were trying to attain prophecy. They had special schools, and they were called the schools of the prophets. And guess what? Some of them achieved prophecy, and some didn't. And even those who did, the Rambam discusses how they would go out 
to, to try to prophesize. They would go into a deep state of meditation. They usually have musical instruments that would accompany them to put them into a higher state of consciousness. Plus they would go out to think, to meditate, and they would attempt. If, again, even someone who was a prophet, not always would the spirit of prophecy descend upon them. Either yeah or no. And then another thing. When finally they made the connection, it's like they hit a Wi-Fi, right? And they suddenly were tuned in. You know, they had the code. You can, I mean, the way today it's these things, things that were so hard to relate to years ago, in a sense are easier to relate to now because now we understand that you can be, you know, if you have, two people can be in one room, one guy's phone works, the other one doesn't. He had the Wi-Fi code, boom, 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 and the phone is working and the communication is going. So imagine that spiritual Wi-Fi. So whoever was worthy of being a prophet would get the prophecy. Guess what would happen? When they would finally receive the prophecy, they would, the Rambam says how they would fall on the floor and they literally would be, go berserk. It looked like they were going to, their, their, their souls started convulsing, I mean, they started, their bodies started convulsing and they started rolling around and, they, and, they, and then they shut down. Then it was as if, as if they fainted. Their like, bodies would like fall still and they were in this transcendental, you know, what does that mean? That means that being a prophet was the most abnormal experience. When Mashiach will come, we will all be prophets. Why? No discrimination. Why? Because prophecy won't be anymore a novelty. It will be the natural experience to be able to experience God and communicate godliness. Everybody, everywhere. Our physical eyes, our fi- the range of vision will expand when Mashiach comes. Now we can only see physical. Then we will behold the, sup- the, the godly, the energy that creates everything, we will see it. And quite in the country, the material, physical world is something that we might forget exists. Even though we're living in it, we might, because we're so in tune with the inner soul of creation. That's the beauty of Mashiach. And that's what we mean, the number eight. The number eight means that the eight, and especially when we're saying not just the number, the eighth, but we're saying eight. What we mean is that the eighth dimension has permeated the seven to the point that the seven and the eight become one. It's not, it's not, it isn't a, a wondrous experience. It's just a normal reality. So here is where I ask the question, and a powerful question. How in the world is our world, a natural, finite world, going to get so comfortable with God and that the experience of the divine is not going to be an extraordinary out of experience. It's going to be normal. What does that mean? That means that nature itself has been sublimated and made godly. But as let's under, uh, what has made has been made godly. How does not that not completely undo the the character of this world. Now, what do I mean by that? Before God created the world, God was revealed everywhere. That's what it says in Arizal, okay? And Zohar. There was nothing but Hashem, God. The process of creation is a process of divine concealment. That means we don't exist as a result of the process of God's projection of Himself, quite on the contrary. Our very, nat- our very substance of existence comes from Hashem hiding Himself, concealing and hiding and hiding. And that's to create any world. Any world was created only by Hashem hiding His life through the absence of God's presence, through the absence of light, God came in, the world comes into existence. 
Now, how much absence? How deep, how, how strong is the absence? How much is God, so to, so to speak, hidden from the world? Well, depending which world we're talking about. The more physical the world is, the more God is hidden in that world. And what's the condition of our physical earth? What's the condition of the physical universe? The nature of the physical universe is that in this world, it can only exist because God is completely shrouded and completely hidden. That means that our very substance of consciousness of being can only exist as a result of God hiding and not the being. Now, now, now we're saying when Mashiach comes, boom, all the concealment will go away, Hashem will, will be present in the world. So I'm not asking the question how that's possible. That a world that's created through divine concealment should suddenly be exposed to divine revelation and it shouldn't melt. I'm not asking how that's, how that's possible. Why am I not asking how that's possible? Because God is omnipotent and God can do whatever He wants. So if he, if he should decide that our physical world that was created through Him concealing Himself should now experience the ultimate revelation, He's God, He can do that. That's not my question. The question I'm asking is, if God does it, then that's a miracle. God does it. But we're saying earlier that what's going to be when Mashiach comes? It's not going to be a miracle to experience God. It's going to be natural. That means that the nature of the world, the nature of the world suggests God everywhere. That is a contradiction to what the definition of the world is. The proof to that is, how do we call, what's the name of the world? What's the general name of all of, all of the world, of everything? If you want to find one word that speaks about the entire world, what's the word? Olam. What does the word olam mean? Olam comes from the word helam, concealment. That means that the basic substance, the first ingredient that is needed for a world to exist, for creation to exist, is for God to be concealed. That's the ingredient. If the ingredient is that Hashem needs to be concealed, how can this very same world continue to, not just continue this, how can Mashiach come, the world be turned around completely, which that's against its very grain of its nature. Its nature, it, again, the question is how can God be revealed over here? Okay, He can do it. The question is how can that be the definition of the world? Doesn't the world cease to be a world? If something's definition, by its, its very core essential definition, it's black. So if I'm making it white, I lost what was. It's not the same thing anymore. It's something else completely. How can the world be a world and still be? That's the question. So what's, so, so, so what's the explanation? So here's an amazing thing. We know that we transform the world. This is a very, very powerful and very enriching and very inspirational concept. We know that we, we, we change, how do we change the world? Ultimately, how does the world go from being the darkest, most concealing place to the ultimate revelation of God being revealed everywhere in this world? It's through the thousands of years of mitzvah observance. All the mitzvahs that we do. And yes, when we say mitzvah observance, we mean actual mitzvah that you did today. If you gave tzedakah today, that mitzvah is changing the cosmos forever. If you prayed today, or you did a good deed, you helped someone, you went to visit a sick person. You did any mitzvah, whatever the mitzvah is. You did that mitzvah, you're actually changing the creation. Mitzvahs change the world. But here's an interesting thing. In Tanya, which, which is the very, very fundamental book of Hasidic thought, in Tanya he says that the main revelation that's going to happen when Moshiach comes 
the godly that revelation that we spoke about before for that revelation to happen and for the world to be able to withstand it and not just withstand it but as we said before for it to be natural to the world to experience God for that to happen it's not just enough that Jews do mitzvahs but it's precisely the mitzvahs that were done during the time of exile he says these interesting words he says it's the mitzvahs that the Jewish people do our actions and our service during the time of the exile and here's the question why does a mitzvah make this world godly why does a mitzvah make this world godly because the mitzvah is the will of God it's the will of Hashem that we are performing with a physical object in this world I'm taking a dollar bill and I'm giving it for tzedakah. I am now fulfilling the wish and the will of the infinite. God wants tzedakah and it's his infinite, it's him. It's he and his will are one, as Maimonides says. And when I'm fulfilling his will with this dollar, I could have bought a cappuccino with it. Instead, I'm doing a mitzvah with this, with this dollar. So what have I just done? I've just connected the physical dollar and my physical arm and the ear that I'm breathing while I'm doing it and the whole environment. And I, I just... I just created a space and a connection for God to be present. If that's the case, what's wrong with the mitzvahs that the Jewish people did when the temple stood? Why does the Alter Rebbe of Shneer Zalman of Liadi, the author of the Tanya, emphasize in his, in, in his incredible <laughs> godly wisdom that it's only the mitzvah that's primarily, truth is he, doesn't, he just says it's the work and our service during the time of exile. Why does he emphasize that? So when one of the most revolutionary talks of the Lubavitcher Rebbe that really is crazy, the depth. He asks this question on this talk on Parsha Shemini, which I'm talking about today. And he answers, a brilliant answer. And he says the reason why it's dafka the work during the time of exile. He says because exactly this idea. It's not enough when Mashiach will come that the world should be, should be saturated with godly light and revelation. That's not the purpose. Because then we will, we, we will and in a sense, it's even frightening then to go to Mashiach's world because basically it means that we as we are will never be the same. We will be someone else. We don't want to be someone else. We want to be, continue to being ourselves. That means that the Mashiach reality is a new world. We don't want a new world. We love our world. We, can, we hope certain things will become better, but we still love. We like the world as it is. We, just want, we know there's problems. We want the world fine. But still, there is our world. The point over here is not just there should be godly revelation over here. The point over here is, as we said earlier, that it should be our nature. It's who we are. It's our nature to connect to God. Not just to connect Him, but to see Him and to experience Him. For that, it's not enough for the mitzvah to bring godly light down here. But here is where I need all your concentration. It's not enough for a mitzvah to channel and to bring godly light down here, but we need that the mitzvah should redefine the physical world. So the mitzvah is doing two things. It's channeling light from above, but it's also remaking the world. It's changing. It's fixing. It's... Now, it can't be it's creating a new world, because if it's creating a new world, that's not the world. We said we have to change our world. So what is the mitzvah doing? How is the mitzvah taking a world whose very definition is time and space and f- finiteness, 
changing it that its nature is to experience the infinite. And yet, how does that work? To, to just sharpen my question that I was asking before, and I think you'll get it, you'll understand it better. I just want to add one more very important idea. You see, if the reason we don't experience a God would be due to some mistake that we have done. If, for instance, God would have created a world where His presence was everywhere and felt everywhere, and then we messed up and ruined the world, that means that our and that caused a concealment of the divine, then I can understand. Through our labor and our work, we undo the mistake that we did. We return the world to its original state where it is in a godly state. Then I would understand how it works. But here's the idea. When God created this world, He created it to be the lowest place. The fact that this world is low is not as a contribution of our sins. Now, let's be straight. Of course, Adam and Chava, when they sinned, caused the world to become much darker than it really was to begin with. But the very fact that they were able to sin in this world, <laughs> the, reason, the reason they were able to make that mistake is a sign that this world, God, was hidden. If God would be revealed. You see, later they felt God in the garden. They ran away to hide, right? So you see that the fact that there was a possibility for them to sin indicates that the nature of the world from when God created it is that it's concealed. If that's the case, why is it when we turn the world around, how can that very world whose definition is to be a concealment of God become a world where God is revealed? And it's natural. It's not, a, it's not a superimposed kind of an experience. The answer is, going back to what I said before, not just mitzvah observance, but mitzvah observance during exile. What is the idea? So I'm going to do this very briefly, but it's very, very, very important. And that is as follows. The reason we're able to transform the nature of this world and make it godly is because it's not like the world was once created. And then a while later, God said, you know, you see that dark place? I'm looking for a place to manifest my... my I'm looking for a home. Hey, you know what? That dumpster over there, that dark place, let's, let's, let's bring that in. Let me, let, me, let me go live there. That's not what happened. When God created the dark world that conceals him, he initially created, he made it dark so that he should be able to make it light. Understand? That means when he concealed himself in the creation of the world, his, his concealment was for the intention that he should reveal himself. That means that hidden inside the concealment is what? The purpose. It means he from the very beginning when he created the world that conceals him, he's creating it for the intention that we through our mitzvahs should transform it and make it receptive. Recipi- uh, re- Make it receptive to his light. Once the intention was there from the very, very beginning, it means that in the kishkes of the world is what? Not concealment, but divine revelation. Because the purpose of something is always within it. Follow? If God would have created a darkness, and then later, a month later, a year later, or two, he decided that he wants to add, then we would have a question. What was our question? Then the revelation would contradict would contradict the nature of the world, which is its very matter, its very substance is based on divine concealment. But if, as we're saying now, the intention that God had originally when he made the world dense was so that we should make it light, 
So the kavana then therefore is already inserted in the world and therefore we're able to transform it. Good, it's an answer. But the Rebbe says it's not the perfect answer. And there's one more question and answer and that's going to like blow everything open. So he says it's not the perfect answer. Why isn't it the perfect answer? Because when do we say that the purpose of something is really its essence is when you're creating it in a manner where the purpose is felt in, the, in what you're doing. If I'm building a car and my purpose is to ride the car, so I'm obviously putting it into the car everything that's needed to drive it. That's what I'm, if I'm building a home so I can live in it, so obviously everything that I'm putting into the house is indicating on livability. But if I'm doing an absurd thing, I'm building a home that's absolutely unlivable, and then I want to live in it. So then, even though my purpose is that I should remake it and transform it, but is that sensed in the house? If I'm putting into everything, if I am building into the house everything that's antithetical to me, so obviously when someone looks at it, or even the house itself, does it see itself as a home for me? No. Even if I had a purpose to change it, the fact that that's my purpose, that purpose is in my heart, but that's not purpose, it's not in the house. It's not visible in the home. It's not seen in the home. If God created our world to be dark, even though His desire is that we should take that darkness and transform it to light, but the purpose of it is not within it. It's outside of it because it's not felt in it. If it's not felt in it, then how can the definition of our world who's created in darkness be so internally transformed to become a, a vessel for light? And, and it should remain the world. It should not remain unnatural. It should be natural to the world. So therefore, he says something just blew my mind when I learned this. I said, wow, this is crazy. If only this teaching can go out to the entire world for everybody to see. An amazing thing. We see something awesome. Precisely for this reason, God built, built a very interesting mechanism in the world. Hear the mechanism. The mechanism is the darker the world gets, the more light it provokes. And what do I mean? We find within our nature, it's a nature, that when we face a challenge, the challenge itself evokes within us a powerful force to overcome that challenge because we have a challenge. Let's give an example. Let's say there is a Jew who doesn't really identify with his Jewishness doesn't care about it. Really, then it means nothing to him. All of his life means nothing. One day he's walking down the streets and he's surrounded by a bunch of thugs. And they somehow figured out he has a Jewish nose. They figure out this guy is a Jew. So they pull out a swastika and they tell him, God forbid, kiss it. And they start calling him Jew. Now this guy couldn't, he, all his life it didn't mean anything to him. Suddenly now you put me a swastika in front of my, no way. He'll take a beating. But he's not going to kiss that swastika. Don't you do that to me. Why? Suddenly he feels so Jewish. So what brought out his Jewishness? The fact that there was such an anti-Jewish thing. There was something that was here, that a monster that wants to eradicate the Jewish people. A symbol that's the ultimate sign of evil. That itself evoked the, within him. So it says an interesting thing. The Jewish people throughout history, what's, what's unique during the exile? What's unique during the exile? What's unique during the exile is that during the time when the Holy Temple stood, we the Jewish people served God. But our service to God was limited. Because our service to Hashem when the Beis Amigdash stood, 
came from our perception of the divine. It came from knowledge. It came from rich understanding. So we did a mitzvah with love, with passion, but it came from what? From a positive thing. Suddenly the exile comes and Jews are thrust into darkness, into difficulties, into hardships. There's no godly light. God is hidden. And yet an amazing thing. You would expect that they should assimilate. You should expect that their Jewish devotion to God should be be completely squished and should be completely uh, extinguished. And yet it's an amazing thing. Suddenly the powerful fire of Mesir Nefesh, of self-sacrifice, an inferno of fire came forth in the Jewish people and Jews by the millions gave their lives up for the sanctification of God's name. Fought to be Jews, fought to keep a mitzvah. What is that? That energy is so much stronger, that devotion is so much stronger than all the inspiration they had when the Beis Amigdash stood. Where did that inspiration come from? From the darkness, from nations and from people that tried to fight God, that brought out the deepest and the strongest within the Jewish people. So, but I'm asking you a little question. I'm not asking where does that happen in the Jewish people. I'm asking how can darkness, that, which, is, which darkness means concealment, how can concealment produce revelation? Concealment is supposed to bring more concealment. What happens in exile? God conceals himself. Concealment is supposed to make darker, darker, darker. Instead, we see this absurd thing that concealment brings out greater light, greater energy because of the concealment. Or I'll give you another example of that. Sometimes a Jew can be living, he's very, 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 he's doing mitzvahs, he's learning, he's davening, he's doing things that are pretty good, you know, he's trying to be a good person. And then suddenly he slips and he does something really bad. Now there's two possibilities how we can react to that. Sometimes when you do something really bad, you listen to Yitzhahara, the natural thing is one sin leads to another sin and there's a a slippery slope and one falls and falls and falls. But then there's another reaction. Or sometimes even the person who slips and slips, it's until they hit rock bottom. (laughs) Then when they hit rock bottom, suddenly, suddenly what happens to the reaction? Dafka, because he sinned, and he, he feels so miserable with himself, he wants to come back. And therefore when he comes back, how does he come back? Because he went so far, that's the whole power of the Balchuva. He comes back to God with such a yearning, with such a fire, with such a thirst that this Jew never had. I'll give you a perfect example. Jews that have been from all their lives, from their parents and their grandparents, are kind of a little bit robotic in their Yiddishkeit. They're kind of a little bit, I'm sorry to start off with all the religious Jews, but the FFBs as they're called, are pretty much, you know, the Yiddishkeit a lot of times is stale. It's lacking energy fervor. Meet the BTs, what we call the Balchuva. They're alive. They're fired up. They're excited. Why? Because, they're, because of the darkness that they come from. Because they didn't have Shabbos. Because they didn't have mikvah. Because they didn't have kosher. So what do we see from here? That darkness produces light. But that doesn't make any sense. Darkness should produce darkness. The answer is... What did we say earlier? When God created the darkness, the absence of himself, the point of that absence was that the absence should lead to a greater revelation. So, and in order for that to be natural to the world, what did God do in the world itself? He put it in. God planted it into the experience of creation and the experience of the world is that every fall or concealment or darknesses leads us to a greater return and to a greater light. So therefore... The mitzvahs that we do in exile are mitzvahs that are not coming from light, they're coming from darkness. They're coming from a serious nefesh. So what are they doing to the world? 
They are re, they're tinkering with the nature of creation. What they're saying is like this. What you think is a world whose definition is not to know God, the truth is its very definition as being dark is not an escape. It's not running away from God. It's running towards Hashem. That's why after thousands of years of mitzvahs that we do, provoked by the darkness, we have now redefined the definition of the world of concealment, that its very concealment is about revelation, not about concealment. So when Mashiach comes and God is revealed, it won't be something that's not part of us. It'll be part of us because the nature of the world is to be godly. That's awesome. And that's the ultimate power of Shemini here. The power of Shemini is a total fusion of eight. And they're just going to conclude. That's why he says an amazing thing. The second half of Parsha Shemini deals with all the dark things in creation. The first half deals with godly revelation. You know what the second half of Parsha Shemini deals with? Stuff that we've never encountered with until Parsha Shemini. All the non-kosher stuff in the world. Astounding. Such a Parsha Shemini, holy of holy, the transcendental, the godly, how in the world is the second half of the parsha talking about bugs, insects, creepy crawly stuff, spiders, all the co- non-kosher birds, non-kosher fish, non-kosher animals? The answer is it's precisely our provocation with the non-kosher world. In all levels, non-kosher doesn't only mean the non- everything non-kosher in the world that makes us so kosher, that makes us so Jewish. Because since we enter into an exile where we confront all these creepy, crawly, dark stuff of creation, instead of them extinguishing our light, they, they spark our light. And that's how we reach to number eight, which what's the beauty of eight? The beauty of eight is not that there is an eighth. The beauty of eight is that all seven are one with the eight. So what's the, how do we conclude all of this? The conclusion of all of this is that we're living now in a time where we're seeing the very nations that have destroyed the Jewish people and sent us into exile. The beauty of this year is we're beginning to see how the forces of Edom themselves are going to rebuild the temple. I don't know how far President Trump is from rebuilding the temple, but I don't think he's too far from it in the sense that what? The fact that he's recognizing Jerusalem, that's huge. Edom, which is the entire Western world, which originates in Rome, is called, this week in the parasha, it's called their name in the Torah, the animal that they're associated with, not to insult anybody, but is the pig. And the Rabbeinu Bachaya brings the Medrash, why is the pig called Chazir? Because in the end, it's going to have a total turnaround. La Chazor, it's going to return, and instead of destroying the temple, it's going to support rebuilding the temple. They themselves are going to rebuild it. Look in Rabbeinu Bechaya this week on the piece of the Chazer. They themselves are going to rebuild it. Now let's talk about Solomon, the guy from, from, from Saudi Arabia. I mentioned this by the Mashiach Suda. He himself is talking about recognition of Israel. He is the heir to Yishmael. He is the heir. And that's never been heard of, that Yishmael is talking already. Okay, he doesn't like Iran. You can say all political reasons why he's doing it. But after all, him and Yishmael and Edom are both speaking about rebuilding a base on English. That's redefining. America, that used to be the place that by coming to America, you had to drop your Yiddishkeit. America itself becomes the most supportive of Israel, most supportive of Jewishness, and eventually we rebuild holiness. That's the power of Mashiach. That's the power of one over seven, of five, seven, seven, eight. Shmini, Shmaina, Shmaina, all there in this year. So why, why, why should we have to wait any longer for Mashiach? Basically, we have all the reasons so clear 
So it happen now, now, now. Today, tonight, not tomorrow, but not later. Let's just have it. Let's just, it's, it's there already. We're going to see the rebuilding of Yerushalayim. We're going to see the rebuilding of all, the, and all this great light. Total fusion in heaven and earth. May it happen now.